Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to 1 Timothy chapter 3. One of the things that surprises us about the pastoral epistles as modern-day readers is the emphasis that Paul seems to place on proper structure and order. Those things tend not to interest us, but they appear to have interested the Apostle Paul a great deal. So, for example, he says to Titus at the beginning of that letter, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul seems to have been a big believer in the second law of thermodynamics. He understood that left untended, everything in this world drifts towards chaos. And so he can regularly be found exerting considerable energy in pursuit of structure, order, and decorum. And so it is here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. As we've mentioned now several times, the problem in Ephesus seems to have been that there was a group of renegade elders, two of whom are named in chapter 1, who have departed from the straightforward teaching of the Christian gospel and have begun to deal in Jewish myths and vain speculation. They appear to have been financially supported by certain women in the church who may themselves have been propagating this teaching. And so in chapter 1, Paul begins to set things back in order. These renegade elders are summarily excommunicated with the hope of their eventual restoration. And then in chapter 2, Paul tells the women that they are to learn in church with a quiet and submissive spirit. They are not to try and set the agenda. They are not to attempt to foist peculiar teachings on the church. Rather, they are to learn and they are to focus on the dignity and appropriateness of good works. Now, here in chapter 3, Paul begins to impose some order on the selection and deployment of official leaders in the church. He speaks about two offices, the office of overseer and the office of deacon. There are a few different words that are used interchangeably in the New Testament to describe the office of church overseer. Here, Paul uses the Greek word episkopos, which some of the older Bibles translate as bishop, though it literally means overseer. And then in the parallel passage in Titus chapter 1, he uses two words interchangeably, the word episkopos again, and also the word presbyteros, which is usually translated as elder. Scholars understand these terms as almost entirely overlapping. So, for example, Donald Guthrie writes, in both epistles, the terms elder and overseer appear to be used interchangeably. Titus 1, 5-7 is conclusive for the view that these two terms could describe the same people. And this fact is now generally accepted among New Testament scholars. And then also in 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20, to those two words is added a third. Peter and Luke both use the verb poimeno, which means to pastor, to tend, or to shepherd sheep. Thus, Linguists and commentators understand the Bible as using three words interchangeably to describe one office, the office of overseer, pastor, elder, or maybe even better, superintendent of the church. 
That is the first office, and Paul talks about the requirements for that office in verses 1 to 7. Then in verses 8 to 13, he talks about the office of deacon, which refers to those who serve or help in some official capacity within the church. We'll talk about how they are different from the elders or pastors when we come to what Paul says about them in the second half of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, the first thing we notice about this list is how incredibly unremarkable it is. In fact, everything that is required of elders or pastors is somewhere else in the New Testament required of believers in general. And I think that's very helpful for us to see. Pastors and elders are not super saints. They're just regular Christians, but actual Christians, who have particular gifts and abilities that are suited to the task of oversight in the church. I think if more people understood that, there might be less depression in the pastorate and more realism in the pews. But that's a story for another day. Paul seems to be saying simply that an elder ought to be saved and ought to be showing the normal character of a Christian. That would be an appropriate observation as to the list as a whole. As to the specifics, a few things probably ought to be said. First of all, Paul says that a potential pastor or elder ought to be above reproach. Now, that doesn't mean that he has to be perfect in his character. It just means that a person shouldn't be considered for the role if there is some obvious character flaw that would bring discredit upon the church if such a person were to be put into an official position. If a man is currently separated from his wife, for example, then obviously that needs to be sorted out first. If a man is currently in debt up to his eyeballs or or behind on his mortgage payments or wrestling with a notoriously bad temper, then obviously those things should be worked on and prayed through and progress should be observed before he is nominated to the position. As to the idea that he should be the husband of one wife, two suggestions are commonly offered here. The first and perhaps most common, is that this refers to the practice of polygamy. Polygamy was mostly in the rearview mirror by the time you get to the New Testament, but it was still relatively common among the very wealthy and among certain pockets of the old aristocracy. And so Paul may simply be saying that such norms among the elite in Judaism were not to be imported into the church. Others hold that it means something more like a one-woman man, as in capable of practicing monogamy. Now, as I read the text in Greek, that's what it looks like to me, but there are so many good and faithful people and so many world-class scholars on both sides of this position that I think it unwise for any of us to be too dogmatic on this point. Happily, there are not too many places left in the world where polygamy is a live issue. There are some, 
but not that many. And therefore, I think it very safe to put the pastoral emphasis on the need for a candidate to have a demonstrated capacity for monogamy. Given how frequently that sort of thing is said elsewhere in the New Testament, we are certainly on solid ground for claiming it here. The terms sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, 1 Timothy 3.2, all of those terms are somewhat overlapping. They speak of men who are circumspect, wise, prudent, and capable of making solid decisions. The need for a potential pastor or elder to be hospitable certainly makes sense given the realities faced by the first century church. The church was not a mainstream organization and it suffered from periodic outbreaks of persecution. So traveling teachers would need to be assured of a safe place to stay. In addition, many elders appear to have hosted corporate gatherings in their homes. So the capacity to show hospitality is here written right into the elder or the pastor's job description. And by the way, it is this understanding of the pastoral ministry that led to the adoption in many countries of what is sometimes called the clergy housing allowance. A part of the pastor's pay in many countries is considered non-taxable precisely because it is understood that part of his job is making space in his home for religious events and services. Whether Bible studies or prayer groups or even counseling sessions, it has been understood that at least some of these things will by necessity take place in the minister's home. And then at the end of verse 2, Paul says that the potential elder or pastor must be able to teach. This is one of the qualifications that is not mentioned with respect to deacons. George W. Knight III says usefully here, there are items in the list for the bishop or the overseer that are not present in this list for deacons, most noteworthy being the requirements that the bishop be able to teach, verse 2, and take care of the church of God, verse 5. It would seem that these two are omitted because they are not part of the role of deacons, closed quote. Again, if we understand the role of the bishop slash overseer slash pastor slash elder slash superintendent as being particularly the teaching and leadership of the church, then this, of course, makes perfect sense. Following that in verse 3, Paul lists a variety of excesses that he must not be given to. The candidate must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent. The Greek says literally not a striker. That is to say, he must not lead his wife and children by brute force and violence. Likewise, he must not be quarrelsome. Many men who are otherwise qualified for the eldership remove themselves from consideration due to their apparent delight in irrelevant theological wrangling, the very tendency that Paul is pushing back on in this letter. While a pastor or elder must be able to rebuke false teaching in his church, Pity the congregation saddled with a pastor who delights in waging war with every other minister in town. Such people shouldn't even be in the ministry. A proper candidate will not be quarrelsome, and nor will he be a lover of money. Now, in most of the places that I've been in the world while on mission, the idea that someone would go into ministry for the money is absolutely ludicrous. Some of the pastors whose homes I've been in in India and Africa are among the very poorest people on the earth. They've given up far better paying jobs in order to care for the people of God. But in Paul's day, in Greco-Roman context in particular, a traveling teacher of any sort could make an awful lot of money if he was any good at his job. And again, in certain parts of North America as well, there are people who go into the ministry because they see it as an easy way to make money. 
But the church must be on the lookout for such folks. The church should pay their pastors fairly. Paul will make that point in chapter 5. But the pastor himself must not enter the ministry because of the money. That seems to be the point here. And then in verses 4 to 5, Paul says that he must have proven himself first as a capable leader in the home, because the church is, of course, modeled upon the home. The church is a family of families, and so a person should prove himself faithful in the smaller context before he is entrusted with authority and influence in the larger context. John Calvin speaks with typical pastoral wisdom here, saying, no matter how much we may admire celibacy and life given over to thinking that is remote from ordinary living, Wise men know from personal experience that people who have experienced ordinary life and are used to the duties that human relationships impose are far more suitable to govern the church. Donald Guthrie is also worth quoting here. He says, Any man unable to govern his children graciously and gravely by maintaining good discipline is no man for government in the church. Quote. I think that is well and helpfully said. Now, of course, we would want to point out that the church has long recognized certain reasonable exceptions to this general rule. Paul, of course, refers to celibacy as a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. So obviously not all men are called to marriage and should not therefore be disqualified from consideration on that basis. After all, Jesus himself was celibate. And it seems that at least at this point in his life, we can be quite certain that the Apostle Paul was celibate also. So obviously this is a general rule that a person should prove himself in the home before attempting leadership in the wider church. Then in verse 6, Paul says that he must not be a recent convert. Of course, as we read through the book of Acts, we notice Paul appointing elders in places like Lystra and Iconium just months after bringing the gospel to those cities. So obviously, recent is a relative term. He must not be a recent convert relative to the rest of the congregation. If the church is only two years old, then he ought to have been a believer for at least 18 months. That seems to be the idea here. And then lastly, we see Paul saying that he must be well thought of by outsiders. Now, of course, in one sense, Christians should expect to be despised by the world. But at the same time, the world should take note of our character and will often begrudgingly admit the quality of our conduct and community. In verses 8 to 13, now Paul begins to describe the qualifications necessary for those who would be considered for appointment to the diaconate. I'll read verses 8 to 10 first. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Obviously, the qualifications are similar to those required of overseers with the exception that deacons do not need to be able to teach or to care for or lead the church. They are servants, and therefore what is said is that they need to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacons, too, should not be novices, but should have a track record of Christian character and service. Verse 11, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this is really the, the most controversial statement in this section. Scholars debate as to whether this refers to the wives of deacons or to female deaconesses. 
Both options are grammatically possible, hence the controversy. Given that the deacons are not tasked with teaching and given that they do not exercise authority over the church, it would seem that there is no reason why Paul would deny this particular office to women. The deacons in the early church cared for widows and orphans and were involved in benevolent ministry to the poor. And we know that women played a critical role in all of those things. And there is also the fact that Paul addresses Phoebe in Romans 16.1 as a deacon of the church in Sancreae. So on the whole, it seems preferable to think that Paul is speaking here about women deacons or deaconesses. And this seems to be the perspective of even many of the most conservative of Bible commentators. John MacArthur, for example, says here, the word likewise relates these women to an office of the church. It refers back to verse 1 and indicates that Paul was talking about the category of an office. We know that he wasn't talking about the wives of deacons because no pronoun was used to refer to them. If that's what he meant, he would have said their wives or their women. And since there are no comments about the wives of elders, why would there be any comments about the wives of deacons? Closed quote. He goes on to say, So there are three distinct offices advocated in 1 Timothy 3, elders, deacons, and deaconesses, closed quote. And I think that is basically correct. Paul speaks of deaconesses, and then he adds a few qualifications that he feels may apply particularly to them. They must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. He then appears to return to the more general qualifications in verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, we see the principle of being faithful in the little things before being entrusted with greater things. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In verses 14 to 15, Paul gives the reason behind all of the things he has said thus far. First of all, he's saying this to prepare the way for what he intends to enact upon his arrival at some point in the future. In essence, Paul is using this letter to lay the groundwork. He wants Timothy to get started on these reforms. He wants the church to know that he approves of these reforms and that he intends to see them through to completion once he is able to do so in person. And then also there's the fact that the church is the household of God and the pillar and buttress of the truth. That is to say that the church should both support and show the truth and power of the gospel. It won't do to have the church looking as messed up and disoriented as the culture. That would only confuse and obscure our witness. No, the church should be a place where redeemed and restored humanity is on full and glorious display and where the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is both communicated and commended through our own lives and personal conduct. Verse 16 seems to contain a fragment of a well-known Christian hymn, which Paul recites as a fitting conclusion to this section. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It seems to me that the force of this citation is twofold. 
First of all, it serves to return the church to matters of first importance rather than theological speculation, rather than gender pioneering. The job of the church is to preach the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that be our business and our passion. And then secondly, it serves to remind us of how fleshly and practical and earthy is the gospel. Scholars debate as to how much early Gnosticism we are to read into the false teaching in 1 Timothy, but clearly there was a very Greek, very pagan approach to holiness among the false teachers themselves. We'll discover in chapter 4 that they were forbidding marriage and advocating for a strict vegetarianism. They were telling people to have nothing to do with the flesh. So Paul reminds them that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. True holiness is not about eschewing the flesh. It is about living as real men and women in the flesh, in real families, in concrete situations, as the redeemed and restored people of God. That is the corrective impulse of this entire letter directed originally at the people of Ephesus, but just as helpful and just as authoritative in our time and culture as well. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.